Okay, we're reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 13, which is on page 1202 of the Church Bibles. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Thanks very much, Coralie. Um, <clears throat> morning, everybody. Thanks. <laughs> it's, really, it's really unconvincing. Oh, morning. Um, let's, oh, thanks so much. It's, I feel like I've made too much of that now. Let's pray. Let's pray and bring order. Father, we thank you for uh, your word to us. Um, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit here with us and in us. And we ask that you would bless us uh, by speaking to us uh, through your word and by your spirit. Amen. Um, we're thinking this morning about um, identity. Uh, we're just, by the way, we're taking a slight hiatus from our 1 Samuel series. Those of you who have been here the last few weeks since September will know we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. It, it's kind of, there's, a, there's, there's, there's so much great stuff in 1 Samuel, of course, but I thought we might want just a little break from the Old Testament, a little bit of New Testament for a few weeks. And so we've got, we've got three weeks now focusing on Jesus. And I hope if you're here for this week and the next couple of weeks, your hearts will be warmed as you see um, who Jesus is. And you have a chance just to meditate on him um, and to grow in him. So that's what we're doing these next few weeks. Uh, and today we're thinking, uh, Hebrews 2, about um, identity. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm the youngest of three. This is relevant, by the way. I'm not just introducing myself. Um, I'm the youngest of three. I've got an older brother and an older sister. We are now all in our 40s. My brother is closer to 50 than 40. <laughs> um, We've got careers, we've got families of our own, uh, you know, we're proper, proper adults. But when we go to our parents' house, the three of us, guess what? We revert back to being children. And it's like we just slot back into our kind of roles. I'm the youngest, so, you know, I'm the favorite, the easygoing one. Um, my brother feels like he's got to take control of everything. 
and kind of give our orders and my sister's awkwardly in the middle. And that's how it is. We kind of go back to our children roles. And I don't know if you, I'm guessing the smiles are because you've experienced something of that yourself, either with your own children or with your own siblings or whatever it might be. There is something deep in us which has buried itself away in our sense of who we are that still impacts us however many years later. Um, how we form our identity, how we see ourselves at the most fundamental level has a massive impact on how we live, how we behave. Um, and I wonder actually whether in the 21st century there's, there's few other issues that are more significant to us, particularly those of us who call ourselves Christians. Um, there's, there's, there's no other issue really more significant than grappling with this question of identity. What is identity? How do we form it? And how do we live in it? And that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, if you're up for a, a fairly deep session right now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go deep. I'm going to move quite fast. And I hope that you will um, be able to grapple with these things. I'm going to ask three questions. The first is, who are we as human beings? The second is, who is Jesus? And the third is, who are you? The first answer to who are we, I think, is pretty profound, but probably quite familiar to many of us. The second, I hope, will blow your socks off as we see who Jesus is. And the third, I hope, will make us think. Um, so here we go. Who are we? Question number one. Who are we? The writer to the Hebrews, this letter we're looking at, has spent the, the first chapter, so we're in chapter two, the first chapter he's spent essentially just telling people how amazing Jesus is and how much better he is than angels. And angels are pretty great, according to this writer. They're pretty great, but Jesus is even better. That's basically chapter one for you, save you reading it. But in fact, there's some amazing language in here. I commend the beginning of chapter one to you. Let me read a little bit of it. Jesus, uh, this is him describing Jesus in chapter one, verse three. He says he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He's saying if you want to know what God is like, then you need to look at Jesus. Um, I love the idea that there's... There is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. And I think for us, that's helpful to bear in mind. When we come to God, we come to a God who is like Jesus. And then he says, if you want to know what God says, listen to Jesus. So in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many ways and in various forms. And now he has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And we'll come back to Jesus in a minute. As I say, I want you to be blown away by him. But the writer goes from, from angels in chapter 1 to us humans in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, It wasn't to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. And then he tries to... By the way, um, Hebrews probably a sermon. And there's a wonderfully kind of... I, I, I resonate with the preacher here at this point because he goes... Somewhere, someone has said, um, there's a bit in the Bible where it says, and he's, he's reaching for a quotation, and he just says, somewhere, someone has said, um, which encourages me, uh, he couldn't remember, it's Psalm 8, um, we now know, it's Psalm 8, so he, he says, look, somewhere, someone has said, Psalm 8, what are mere mortals that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, you made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet, so he quotes Psalm 8 to say, in answer to the question, who are we? Who are human beings? He says, we are made by God, a little lower than the angels. That's pretty high. 
and he's crowned them, these human beings, with glory and honor. And he says, everything has been put under our feet. So we're made by him to reflect him, to be his representatives on earth, his ambassadors, to, to rule over it, to steward it, to look after it. He puts everything under our feet. That is how it's meant to be. That is, if you like, the Garden of Eden, the chapter 2 in the beginning of the Bible. That's how it's meant to be. But, verse 8, second half, I love the realism of the Bible. I love this realism. <laughs> That's how it's meant to be. We're meant to be in charge and looking after stuff. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. That is an understatement, right? At present, we do not see everything subject to them. As things stand, I don't know if you've noticed this, um, as things stand in the universe, uh, human beings don't have much control over affairs. So think of the four Ds commonly talked about. You've got div disease, divorce, disaster, and death. The four Ds make a mockery of the idea that all things are, are under our feet. So disease. It's, we, we, as human beings, we kind of play whack-a-mole. We sort one disease out and another one props up that we can't deal with. Divorce, we might think of just not specifically divorce, but relational breakdown. Relationships are hard. Domestic violence, abuse, endemic loneliness in our society. Things are not under our control. They're not going very well. Um, and then disaster. Well, climate change has made things a lot harder. And it seems often that the earth is raging against us and we're victims of disaster. We have no control over it. And of course, death, death really is the thing that reigns over this world, not human beings. It looms over us all. And as Christians, we might add a fifth D, the devil, who kind of lurks behind those four Ds and seems to be more in control of this world than we are. So when the writer says, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, we go, yeah, I think we feel that. And maybe some of us this morning have come to church really feeling that at present, we do not see things subject to us. Perhaps you know all too well how unsubject things are to you, how out of control life can be. Um, maybe there are things going on in your life right now which actually if other people knew about, you'd be a bit embarrassed. You maybe wouldn't come across quite as assured and, and kind of together as you might seem. Maybe for some of us, relationships have broken down and it's, and it's really, really painful. For others of us, disease has spun our lives out of control and death is looming larger than we would like. And for many of us, the news is just relentless and it's just overwhelming. It just seems bleak. We seem to be at the mercy of everything and so we hear God made you and put everything under your feet and we go, yeah, well, how's that going? Not very well. And Hebrews gives us it, he summarizes it in one tweet length, Twitter length. This is the phrase that we resonate with perhaps this morning, yet at present. We do not see everything subject to them. Hashtag, life is hard. I think that's how we could summarize that verse if we're middle-aged and using Twitter. Um, my, my daughter, my daughter uh, added herself to Twitter with my permission because she was like, Dad, seriously, I can't, like, there's no one on Twitter. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I just want to follow, like, my school Twitter account. Yeah, fair enough. Um, no one's... Anyway, um, there you go. Life is hard. So if you are feeling the realism of verse 8, if that is how you've come to church this morning, then I hope that this next question encourages you. So the next question we're thinking about is, who is Jesus? 
and this changes everything, and it's absolute gold. Just imagine for a sec, before I get to the good news, I'm going to build the tension here. Imagine for a sec that the Bible ended where we've just parked ourselves for a bit. That it ended with the idea of human beings are great. They've been kind of made glorious by God and they've been given uh, stewardship of the world and they're meant to be in charge, but they've mucked everything up uh, and, uh, and now life is hard and nothing's subject to them. And that's the end. That would be bleak. And I, I, I want to point out that before I get onto this news of Jesus, that if we are at the moment trying to do life without Jesus, that is the end of our story at the moment. And that's really hard. We might be Christians, but we might functionally be doing life without Jesus. And if that's the case, let me plead with you this morning to come with me to the good news of verse 9 and to live in that because it's so much better. Here we go, verse 9. But we do see Jesus. So we do not see everything subject to them at the moment, but we do see Jesus. In the Bible, there are many good buts, and this is the best of them. <laughs> James Certain's laughing at my puerile joke. Um, <laughs> I apologize for that really cheap line, but this is, this, is, this is an unbelievable but. We do, but we do see Jesus. We see Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the one who is the exact representation of his being, uh, of, God, of the Father, the one who sustains all things by his powerful word, the one who is far superior to the angels and anything else you care to think of in creation. And yet, that is not what the writer says yet. He says, but we do see Jesus. And then he goes on and says, who was made lower than the angels for a little while? now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, everyone, uh, he might taste death for everyone. So the question, who is Jesus? In verses 9 to 11, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. And by the way, he is the Son of God who lived out that bit of Psalm 8 that the writer couldn't quite bring to mind. That That, that was our responsibility. We were meant to be the people who looked after this world perfectly. Jesus actually did it. He's the one who fulfilled our purpose on earth. And having lived a perfect human life, he died. And in doing so, he took on the curse which we live in now as a result of our sin. That's why hashtag life is hard. Because of the curse of Adam, and that was that death would rule and not life. Jesus then, the eternal son, made a little lower than the angels, is now crowned with glory. That means he has ascended as a man, the man he became, returned to his rightful home where he belongs beyond death in glory with God. That's Jesus. But we do see Jesus. Here is a question which I've struggled with a little bit and I think finally cracked through this passage. And maybe you've never thought about this, in which case will come with me anyway. If Jesus was God eternally... Why does he seem in the Bible to get more honor once he's become a man, died, and resurrected? Have you noticed that? It says he was given the name above all names once he died and resurrected and ascended. So if he was God, how could he get more honor? Do you see what I mean? That's a tricky thing that I've wrestled with from time to time. And I've got the answer. And it's brilliant for us. Here it is. It is such a big deal because in verse 10... He says, this is where it gets real for us, verse 10, 
in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. It is this. It's in bringing many sons and daughters to glory. When this man, Jesus, is declared to be the Son of God, given the name above every name, that is the first time a man, a human being, has been declared God. And in that is our salvation, our human being's salvation. Right? Because Jesus became a man, a human being like us, because he suffered, because he died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven as a man, well, so can we. The early church fathers often put it like this. The Son of God became human so that humans might become sons of God. And that is why verse 10 says... He is our pioneer of salvation. Where he goes first, we will follow. When we come to Jesus, it's like we get on the Jesus train. Where he goes, we follow. So just as Jesus suffered, died, rose and ascended in glory, so we too will suffer, die, rise and ascend in glory. If you are a Christian, your salvation in Jesus is so much more than a ticket to heaven. It is so much more than that. It is the status, the life, and the experience of being a son of God. By the way, the only reason I've just used gender-specific language there, I'm aware that I didn't say sons and daughters there. Don't wanna, I'm not trying to offend anyone by saying that. Let me tell you why. It is because in this particular passage, it is... More, we are being told more than simply being children of God in a vague sense of being God's child. This is, this is actually being conferred on, on believers is the, the privilege of sonship in a culture where sons, the, the oldest son got everything. We are being told you get to be that. You get the life of the first son, heir to all things. And so it is significant that we are called sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. And if, if as ladies we feel a bit kind of weird about being called a son of God, that's fair enough and there's lots of good inclusive language in the Bible as well. But bear in mind, blokes, you're the bride of Christ. Like it says, it tells us something theological, not something about gender in that sense. Does that make sense? And you are the son of God in that sense. Can you see how much more that is than just like forgiveness of sins, which is great? Not going to hell, which is also a good thing. Purpose in life, which is really good. All those things are great, but this is huge. Being a Christian is not an added bonus or an optional extra. It's not like a kind of thing that you add on to your gym membership. It's not like, yeah, I'll pay £30 a month. Well, that would be a bargain, actually. I'll pay £100 a month for my gym membership, and I'm also a Christian on the weekends. This is, being saved by Jesus is, means being given the life of the Son of God doesn't really get more profound than that or bigger than that. If you don't believe me, believe Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Verse 11, here it says this. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And this is wonderful. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus calls you his brother or his sister. You are a son or a daughter of God. Jesus is your brother. You've been made part of God's family. 
Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who became a human so that you might become a son of God. Last question. Who are you? This is, this is where it hits for us, I hope encouragingly. It's one thing to know up here that through Jesus I might become a son of God. I'm made to become that and one, two, one day too I will rise in glory. It's one thing to know that. I guess we can grasp that in our heads, but it takes a lifetime for us to ingest that, to, to know it in here, for it to become part of my core identity. That is a lifetime's work. So when I ask who are you in this last question, that is I want us to get thinking about how we see ourselves. What is your identity or your sense of purpose and worth? What is it based on? Some, some things, when it comes to that kind of idea of identity, some things seem almost primal to us, don't they? A little bit like I was saying with my brothers and sisters, we kind of slot back into that weird sense of sibling identity. Maybe for you, being a mum or a dad is fundamental to your identity. Or maybe you are the firstborn child who's always carried responsibility and proving your worth has always been kind of driving you. Maybe you're from a really difficult background and that start in life has, has shaped you. You're a self-made person. You're independent. You can do it. Or maybe you're from a kind of public school background and you've been taught from the age of seven that you are a leader, that you are the best, that you are wealthy and that you will succeed. That's going to shape you. Or maybe you're someone who's always struggled with their sense of identity. You're not really sure who you are. You've had conflicting things going on. You're not quite sure. Whoever you are, if you have come to put your trust in Jesus, you are primarily a son of God. And I mean that in the theological sense. There is nothing that is more basic to who you are than that. And to the extent that other things are more basic to who we are, that will be death to us spiritually. If being a mum, obviously I'm not speaking personally here, if being a mum is core to my being, then what happens to my identity when my kids grow up? How do I see and let alone deal with my failings as a parent? You know, if, that's, if that is fundamentally who I am. If I'm a high flyer, high achiever, I need to kind of prove myself in every situation to every person. How does that affect my, how I see God and how I think he sees me? Is he another person that I need to impress and show that I'm a high achiever? Your identity is not based on your role in life. It is not based on your gut feeling of who you are. I think that may be what our culture is trying to suggest to us. You know, look inside you. Find the real you inside you and set it free. We're all Elsa's. I'm free. You know, no rules for me. All of those things, whether our role or our feelings, they change through life for good reasons. And often they're in conflict with each other, actually, if we're honest and we look inside. Our identity is as a son or daughter of God. Nothing to prove because your older brother, Jesus, has proven it for you. You can't lose it because Jesus has secured it for you. All you need to do is live in it and from it. I think this issue of identity is massive. Everything flows from it. Absolutely everything. What is your core? How are you defined? What defines you deep down? 
So think about that question, who am I? If you're a believer in Jesus, you've been made a son of God. You're adopted into his family. That is your core identity. Everything else in your life builds on that solid foundation. And your existence now is about matching your life with who you are. Uh, as I close, I came across this quote from the novelist Maya Angelou, who maybe, maybe you've read one or two of her books. Um, I think this sums up something of what I'd love us to go away thinking this morning. She says this, When I found that I knew not only that there was a God, but that I was a child of God, when I understood that, when I comprehended that, more than that, when I internalized that, ingested that, I became courageous. So Jesus, the Son of God, is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. And as we grasp that, it is the key to joy, to freedom, to holiness, to perseverance, and as Maya Angelou says, to courage in this life. It's, it's the key to all the good stuff. Let's have a bit of quiet as we have time to think and pray. Lord Jesus, you are our brother, and that seems a stupendous thing to say. So we ask now by your spirit that you would help us to internalize and ingest that, that we might know ourselves fundamentally to be your sons, your daughters, and that as we grasp that more and more, we might know the great freedom of living in it, that nothing can rock us. And that we might therefore live lives which bring glory to you. Please Lord help us in this. Amen.